Welcome to Startup Jab. And welcome to episode 27 of Startup Jab. We survived Snowzilla or Edward Snowden or David Snowy or whatever ridiculous hashtag people were using. Snow v. Uh, Wade. <laughs> excuse me. Yes, that's a good one. I am, of course, one of your two hosts, Jason Ellis. With me, as always, the snowman to my deranged killer monster, Snowgoon, Teague <laughs> Hopkins. Teague, did you like that Calvin and Hobbes reference? That's good. I like it. I like it. I, I like any Calvin and Hobbes reference. Well, I, I, I think we can, all, we can all agree on that. Next time, you'll be the spaceman spiff to my uh, tracer bullet. How's that? To my, I guess we're both stupendous, man. Let's just call it that. Anyway, uh, we appreciate you guys all joining us. It is a beautiful Thursday here when we're recording, uh, both on our live blabcast as well as our uh, podcast recording. Um, I do want to take a second, though, before we jump into our usual, hey, how you doing, questions and such, to uh, just give a quick shout out and let you guys know that we have started adding some stuff to our podcast listeners' feeds. So if you're only checking us out on Blab, you're actually missing out. It's I know. true. It's sad but it is true. Uh, so we recommend that if you are interested in getting your full startup jab, uh, I don't know, uh, daily recommended diet, uh, we recommend that you join us over on your favorite podcasting uh, system, either iTunes or whatever makes you happiest for Android, and uh, come check us out because we've got, uh, got a couple of mini episodes we're recording. We've got some special uh, subscriber-only stuff that we're doing. Uh, that's right, ladies and gentlemen, we're expanding because after 27 episodes, it's time to grow up a little bit. A little bit. Maybe, maybe not yet. Yeah. We've still, we've no, still no, got no, a few no, more episodes no. before the midlife crisis, right? Is this, I'm sorry, is this not a midlife crisis? I thought that's what <laughs> I was experiencing. Oh, good. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and if you guys are on our mailing list, um, you will get both updates about upcoming live shows and updates when we post something new to the podcast. So if you get on the mailing list, you'll, you'll get notifications about all the things. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Well, with that, let me just ask Teague, how are you doing, buddy? I am doing quite well. We uh, we survived the 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 blizzard of of twenty sixteen in our impervious mm -hmm. castle, otherwise known as a large mm -hmm. apartment building. Solid work, my friend. Yeah, yeah. My uh, my my row house was filled to the gills this weekend with people who needed somewhere to go that wasn't their English basement apartment, mm -hmm. as my roommate here in the live chat can attest uh, it was a uh, well it was an adventure mostly filled with eating and watching a ton of really bad television um anyway i did bite it i totally bit it in front of my office twice oh, ended. oh man full-on like cartoon splayed out you know ass up in the air head in the the dirt it was a whole thing it's really it's really not good when the local homeless guy who is, is talking to himself a lot stops his conversation to himself, turns to you, and asks if you're okay. That's never a good sign. That's nice. I thought you were going to say when he just laughs at you for wiping out. No, no he was, he's a very good. generous soul. It's just That's he's, nice. you know, I mean, if he's, if he's worried about your safety and concerned about your well-being, uh, you, fall, you have fallen quickly, I guess I would say. Yeah, yeah, I think the... Uh... There, there's been a couple of folks complaining about people not, you know, shoveling the walks in front of their, in front of their property. And certainly once, you know, when the snow melts and then refreezes into a sheet of ice, 
yeah. you gotta you gotta walk like a penguin so you don't fall down, right? So it's uh, weight forward. There's a, there's a great diagram for it. It's physics. <laughs> that's a tangent. We that's a tangent for another day. Indeed. Um, well, instead of tangenting, why don't we dive right into it? Teague, I know you've got a news item that you are hot to discuss, my friend. So this is this is kind of just a, a fun one that uh, that I want to throw out there. Um, Formula E, uh, which is the the electric racing league, um, has announced a uh, a driverless car championship. So. Not only do these do these cars now no longer use um, gasoline, right, or diesel, um, they're they're electric cars, and now they won't have drivers either. It's going to be completely autonomous. So it'll be a testament of a testament to the to the 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 cars software teams as well as their hardware teams to try and create these these vehicles that will <clears throat> compete at you know three hundred kilometers per hour, which somebody can do the conversion on that. It's, it's, it's just shy of two hundred miles an hour. Yeah, a little under 200 miles an hour, which, yeah. and, and, and have the, the computer driving the car, which I think is, is fantastic. It, it, you know, certainly makes it a little bit safer. <laughs> but I uh, suppose that depends on your definition of safe. I mean, yes, it's safer for the humans, except if the cars malfunction and veer off the road. Well, there is that. And, you yeah. know, robot rights and everything. Right? <laughs> there's, a, there's a Futurama reference in there somewhere. There is. That's uh, that's pretty cool. I, the one thing I'm concerned about is the fact, and, and it's not really the concern so much as something that I'm interested in. It's the choice to go with um, software-driven uh, directing versus a human actually behind. I mean, the human remote remote controlling sort of you know like the way that you like had those RC cars where you know, you'd hold on to the, to the little black grip and then you'd have the wheel that you could adjust and turn accordingly. Right. Um, right. Well, the first person drone racing is is, is a separate league. No. Oh, okay. So it's just a difference in league. Got it. Okay. Yeah. One one of them is is cars, and one of them is is little flying drones. But uh, both of those will exist, and as 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 live sports get closer and closer to esports. Yes, indeed. Wow. Conversion is... in both directions. <laughs> well, it's uh, what is it? It's is the the convergence where we all become uh, basically just uh, uh, artificial intelligences. It's not the convergence. What's the term? Singularity. For it? The singularity. Thank you. Mm. We're we're converging on the singularity. Sure. That's what I was going for. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I like it. I think it's cool. I like the I like the name Robo Race. It's just direct, <laughs> simple, and easy. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I I think it's yeah. It's it's very interesting to to see. You know, it's it's on some level you could presumably simulate a lot of the race, but you know, live race conditions are always going to be slightly more complicated than any simulation is able to capture. Sure. But uh, yeah, and well, and, and and as Ryan is the chat in the chat is saying, Formula One has had issues with cheating for years related to software-based throttle control, right? Because uh, Formula One race cars, I believe, are, are are artificially limited to their to their performance specifications, um, and and this is a, on some level they're just saying like, all right, fine, we're gonna we're gonna take out all the restrictions and just let you go at it, right? Um, you you can you can design the best car and you can you can have a computer driving it and just do the do do the you know this is the unlimited league, right? It's eventually there will be the you know, you must have a human driver league and the unlimited league because clearly the computers have faster reflexes than the humans and they're going to make, you know, better split time decisions. Yeah, but first computers are driving and then they're taking over our basketball games. And where does it end, Teague? Where does it end? Uh, it doesn't end with Go. No, that is correct. It does not because uh, because Google's Google's uh, AI re um, playing playing the Go board game has, has finally beaten a a champion. And really, it's, it's the beginning of the end for uh, for the, the the human dominance of the of the board game Go, and you know as this is 
we we've uh, it's been a long time since since humans were able to beat the best computers at chess. But Go is a is a perhaps exponentially more um, complicated solution space. Um, there are a lot more board positions and moves that you can have in Go, and uh, and and Google has has finally created a, a distributed AI that has been able to beat. I believe it was the European champion at at, at five games out of five in Go. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, I've, I've, Go was never my strong suit, so I'm interested. Mine in either. I'm pretty, <laughs> sure, I'm pretty sure computers have been able to beat me at Go for at least 20 years. Yeah, and chess and checkers and sometimes Battleship, too. It's terrible. Ooh. Yep. Although, I did play a lot of Jeopardy growing up on the computer. CD-ROM, bad rendering of Alex Trebek, the whole nine yards, man. I loved that. So, so you think you could beat Watson? I don't know if I could beat Watson. Probably not. I could definitely take Watson in You Don't Know Jack, because that was another favorite. There you go. And I got to tell you, those guys, man, they could make a, a, a trivia game. That was something else. If, if anybody knows anybody at Jelly Vision in Chicago and wants to put in a good word for us, please, please do. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good, good set of games. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, well, that's really cool. Um, well... I don't know, when driverless cars become a real thing and uh, none of us ever have to pay attention, uh, the irony would be that uh, we spend our time watching uh, driverless racing. I yeah, think that would be totally. the way to do it. That's, that's absolutely yeah. the way it's going to work. I love it. All right. <laughs> okay. Cool. With, with that wonderful detour into, into uh, sports and gaming completed, uh, let's, let's jump into the meat of our episode. We're, we're talking today about um, some, of the, some of the big problems for, for early stage startups. Um, and... From a, from a couple of different a couple of different sources, mm -hmm. some of these are are questions that uh, that we were asked to answer on Quora, and some others we've we've called from the uh, from from the related questions on Quora. So we're gonna we're gonna do a Quora day and uh, mm -hmm. and try to answer a few of these questions. Um, the first one comes from uh, somebody who is who is working with a startup, and they're they're asking how do you teach early stage startups to use the lean startup methodology. Um, this person is currently working with an early stage startup that is very committed to their solution, um, and you know, and, and and he or she believes that uh, from talking to them, it's pretty obvious that they haven't really solved customer problem fit yet, but uh, but they believe they do, um, or they believe they have. Um, so well, so that's I, an interesting an interesting challenge. Jason, you wanna you wanna kick that off? Yeah, I mean, it's such a it's such a basic early lean challenge. Um, we. At any time you're advising somebody who's who's trying to use lean for the first time, the one of the one of the first things you tend to see is this, where they've come up with this concept and they're convinced that it's a great business idea. And in lean, unless you've unless you've selected and found a problem, right? You've done the research to identify an actual need that exists in the market. Creating a solution ahead of that problem doesn't really work because then you're not taking a problem and creating a solution that you think will work. It's I've created a a solution. Now I got to back it into a problem. That's like saying, I know that, you know, it, it's like saying, I know that X equals six, but I got to find a formula where that's a question. And, and that does, that's not how that works. Um, easier you know, math. one of the, it is easier. Well, it's easier in math because I can pretend, well, I don't know, two X minus six X equals six. Sure. Um, can't believe I did that in my head. It's, it's anyway, transitive. it's Maybe. transitive property. Yeah. Transitive right, property. Sure. Take a breath. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, symmetric and oh bidirectional anyway go ahead you sorry <laughs> and i'm being made fun of in the chat here for my math skills i'll have you know i made it to ap calc and i got a c in it twice so we're good <laughs> that is that is actually the hard limit of my math understanding and knowledge anyway 
Um, more to the point, the problem solution question in Lean is, is definitely a challenging one. Um, I know that uh, in, in the past, the way that it's been worked out for me is to use either a, a, a Javelin board uh, or even perhaps a, a, you know, a business model canvas of some kind to help sort of help somebody establish sort of what the procedure should look like mm -hmm. rather than trying to show how their solution doesn't back into a problem the way that they think it does. Um, I don't know, Teague, I, I think that my only concern with that's with my suggestion is that sometimes people need to be first really, really specifically educated on any of the boards that are available to help establish this. What are your thoughts on using that as a tool early on? Well, so first of all, I think you're absolutely right that this is, they've got a, um, it's, it's the solution searching for a problem Right. classic challenge, right? I mean, they've, they've built something that they, that seems really cool, but they don't know who they're solving a problem for. Um, mm -hmm. and that's really difficult because then like you build something really cool, you launch it and crickets, right? Um, I wish I had a cricket sound effect to play right now, but, uh, but <laughs> it's, 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 you know, almost any, anyone who's been an entrepreneur for any period of time has had this exact experience where you're like, mm -hmm. oh my God, this is amazing. We, we built this really cool yep. tool. We've launched it and nothing. Right. Because. Because you don't know who you're solving it for and you haven't reached out to them and you haven't, you know, articulated the value proposition in a way that actually makes sense to them. I, you know, I think this is this is the reason why um, why I, I work most often with people who are not first time entrepreneurs, but who are you know second or third time or who are, you know, serial yeah. entrepreneurs, because it's it's usually not the first time entrepreneurs who even recognize that lean is valuable Um, the first time entrepreneurs, you know, often have seen in mainstream media this like, oh, you know, somebody builds a thing and then uh, and then like they make a million dollars and that's awesome and I want to do that. So I'm going to build a thing right. and then like it's going to be successful. Um, and it has not occurred to them yet, like you might build something and, and nothing happens. Um, or like, you know, that might be, they think that it's that it's about execution, not necessarily about finding finding the right the right problem to solve. Oh, sure. Um, but, but a lot of times, you know, after that first experience of, okay, we launched something and nothing happened, how do we avoid having that ever happen again because it's really painful? Um, yeah. then they'll come to lean startup and realize like, okay, let's, let's not start from what we want to actually build. What's going to be cool. Let's start from who do we want to solve a problem for? Okay. Now let's figure out what problems they actually have that are high priorities for them. And then let's try to solve one of those. And once we have that, let's make sure that like this, this, this group of people that we've talked to is actually representative of a larger market and not like we found this one guy who has a wacky problem and we're going to solve it for him, but like nobody else has this problem. Um, yeah. And, and so, yes, I, I think that, um, I would totally recommend a, a canvas. I like lean canvas more than business model canvas for early stuff okay. because it tends to focus on, um, on the things that you can actually have hypotheses about in the very beginning when you're starting, um, the, the business model canvas has more stuff about, you know, partners and, and, um, and, and key activities, which you're, you don't really know in the beginning, right. Sure. Um, the lean canvas focuses more on problem solution, value proposition, um, and, and it's actually some things that you can, you can have an idea about. Um, and, and it's, it's fairly easy to put together, right. With, 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 um, with a little bit of coaching, you can, you can create your first lean canvas in, in maybe an hour. Um, and then after that, uh, you can, you can create next ones. Every time you learn something, you can update it in less than 10 minutes. Um, and when you compare that to the process of writing out a, a huge business plan that might take you, you know, weeks of, of writing and editing and is like 20 pages or 30 or 40 or a hundred and nobody actually reads it after you've created it. Um, the, you know, having the one page business canvas that actually stays up to date with what you know currently about the business model yeah. and what's working um, is just a much more valuable tool. Well, yeah, I'm with you. You know, the one thing I would also think about is that we, 
may even be jumping ahead a little bit. Maybe the solution is to actually just have that person do a bunch of customer interviews and help them set up the questions and keep them limited to a set of questions that show them that their solution isn't necessarily the solution that everybody's going to come to for the problem they think they're solving for. So, for example, if I'm trying to build, um, I don't know, a dog walking service, and I'm really convinced that what people really want out of the dog walking service is that their dogs are, I don't know, always painted purple, go interview customers with a certain set. I know it's a dumb example. Shut up. But if people, you know, that. The, but listen, I mean, you, you laugh at that example, but have you not heard people come up with the equally crazy business ideas for problems that don't exist? Mm. I mean, I, you have to admit that there is, and I've been in your presence when this has happened, but the number of people who have come up with the weirdest bizarre shit and they think that it's because they've, sol they've identified and, and they're solving a problem when really what they've done is they've created this thing that in their head works but they haven't actually done the research to confirm this is a problem that needs solving. Yeah, so, well, I think I think the bigger challenge is, is when people have something that sounds logical, but they haven't actually validated anything. Because right. then it's like it's easy to convince yourself, like, this actually is a great idea. It sounds like a great idea. And everybody I talk to thinks it's a great idea, but I haven't talked to anybody who would actually buy it yet. Right. Right? Yeah. Or, or you've been asking questions that everybody would say. I mean, if you're asking your friends and you're asking people who like you and you're saying, hey, I'm building this thing. Don't you think it's a great idea? Of course, they're going to say it's a great idea far and above. Yeah. Because yeah. Friend, gonna friends and family, <laughs> yeah, friends and family will, will, will always will always bet on you, not because your idea is good, but because they like you and they think you will succeed regardless of what the idea is. Right. Right. And and, you know, look, I think that there are some I think sometimes people come up with ideas that absolutely don't you know, they, they luck out and they find something that people want and they're willing to pay for even though they don't need it. I, I don't <laughs> imagine true. that anybody did any research for the shake weight for that to be an exercise tool that oh, people I, need. It. I'm sure there was there was research that went into that. That's not the kind of research, all right? That's like that's, that's like when, when the internet talks about research and science, that's a very different thing. Don't ask <laughs> me to explain that. Look it up, kids. Um, or don't. act. Don't look it up at work, just FYI. Anyway, yes. Um, I'm so, so I, I think trouble. I think we've 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 gotten away from the original question, which is which yeah. is if you're working with a startup that thinks that they're that they have the solution but they want to do lean, how do you help them? Um, and, yeah. and I I always go back to the um, uh, no plan survives first contact with the enemy, which is yeah. Helmuth von Moltke the Elder, um, or or if you prefer a more modern reference, uh, Mike Tyson's um, everyone, uh, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face, um, which, which is oddly brilliant advice from a man who doesn't always have the smartest stuff going on. Uh, yeah, no, I think, I mean, he's right. And I think the best way you can help a startup that's in that situation is help them get punched in the face as quickly as possible. Uh huh. there you go. It's, you know, you, you, yeah. they think they've got this great thing and you think that it's not gonna work and, and that's a great opportunity for you to show them, to, to, for, for you both, maybe they will show you that it does work, but like, rather than continuing to build it, see if they can sell it to anybody before it's built. Yeah. Um, and and that will, yeah, exactly, right. Yeah. And then there's a, there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of ways to do that um, that don't require a huge investment. Um, yeah. And that's you know it's you can if you can sell them on a on a small experiment to see whether they can get any traction. Um, it's it's easy to uh, it's easy to imagine that you'll be that you'll have you know sudden sudden uptick until you've actually done anything. And then once you once you try to like even you know. If you think it's terrible and, and you say, well, let's let's you know spend a hundred bucks on Google AdWords and see if we can get some email signups even. And right. if, they, if that doesn't 
provide anything, then then suddenly people will say, oh, wait a minute, we have a major problem. What's going on here? What did we what did we do wrong? Um, but but and that's that's a fairly low bar to, to cross, right? Like you you really ideally oh. want to get to the like get people to to engage in the purchase process and actually think that they're purchasing this thing that's not ready yet, and then tell them like, right. okay, actually, you know, we're not ready yet. We're not going to take your money yet, but thank you for letting well, us know that you actually wanted to buy it. Yeah, let me put my marketing hat on for just a second and just say that part of that made me, if you spend $100 on, let's say, Facebook ads or Google ads or something like that, part of what you may also have challenge with is how you're actually receiving people. So one of the things that we've encountered with clients in the past is that they get really great engagement online, all the metrics look right, they get, you know, the audience targeting looks great, there's low cost per click, we're in the right sweet spot, and then magically nobody signs up for it, nobody pays for it, nobody's interested in it. And it raises questions of, did we target properly? Did, you know, are we using the right calls to action? There's a whole chunk ahead of that in addition to the, maybe you're not, you know, maybe you're, the button is ugly or you're not asking for the right, right. action. I mean, there's, there's 50,000 ways to do that. But I agree with you in principle. The one thing to bear in mind is that unless you go out and actually test something, unless you really sit down and conceptualize what the problem is that is leading to this solution, then at that point, you're just making it up as you go along. And that's fine, but that's not lean. Yeah. Well, and 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 just to clarify for, for anyone who's listening, I, I would strongly advocate for doing in-person customer development interviews as a first step, not building a landing page and driving traffic to it with a with a you know with an ad campaign. But yeah. I think that uh, the, the 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 challenge when somebody is already that many steps down the road is you have to show them some kind of, of, of negative signal that says, Hey, this is not, you know, this is not going as well as you think it's going. Maybe you want to make sure that you're actually, that you actually have something here before you invest a whole lot in building it. Agreed. Cool. Well, if anybody else has any thoughts on that, feel free to write into us or to leave a comment or reach out in one of the 50 ways that we mentioned at the end of every episode. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, our next question, uh, which also comes from Quora is asking about, uh, well, uh, a subject that Teague and I are very familiar with, the luxury fashion space. Sure, yeah. Anyway, but the question is, is there such a thing as an MVP, a minimum viable product for a luxury fashion startup? And the question comes from the idea that traditional lean startup model does not apply to luxury startups, which uh, face the unique challenge of launching with a desirable product from the get-go. In a sector where brand essence and desirability is so important, I can't see how a scrappy startup route might work. And again, I'm, I'm quoting from the question. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't know that I agree with that, but I don't, I, I also think I agree with the idea that you really have to hit the ground running in a sense for brands to really be effective in that space. Uh, what are your thoughts? So first, my first thought of course is, is, I, you know, I always have to throw out the disclaimer. I hate the term MVP, um, because oh, okay. it gets misused so often, uh, in startups. And so I like to talk about like, what are we actually saying here? Right. Are we, are we talking about, uh, you know, a small run of the physical product? Are we talking about, um, you know, designing a website that can sell this stuff? Like what, what's the actual uh, experiment sure. that they're running? Because I think, you know, a lot of different people will say MVP and mean 10 different things. It's kind of like if you've ever walked into a room of, of developers and says, you know, okay, who in this room practices agile? And, you know, all the hands will go up. And then like, right. if you actually ask 10 people what they mean by that, they'll, they'll answer 10 different things. 
Well, um, the, the better example actually is that development means something different to different people because development in the technical yeah. world is technology development and coding mm -hmm. and, and, you know, building products and such. But development also means fundraising if you're in the nonprofit yeah. world. And if, so and if you're I, in the international yeah. development space, it, it means, you know, inter international development is, is, is aid, right? It means, yeah. it means programs to help, help folks. Right. De okay. develop their communities. So, right, so, so let's let's take a step back then for a second. Let's presume that the concept of the MVP isn't quite what we're discussing. And really the idea sure. is that you, you need to start with a product. And in the fashion world, particularly the luxury fashion world, it seems, if you don't hit the ground with something that people are going to absolutely love, your brand is kind of trashed from the start. I guess, mm. do, you, do you agree with that supposition? So... It, it's an interesting question, right? I think I think there's certain things that you can that you can take the risk out of in in um, in approaching, you know, from from a luxury fashion perspective, trying to do lean. I, I do think that branding is something that is that is more difficult to experiment with because there's fewer um, there's fewer signals and it's harder to separate out cause and effect, right? So you can do you know, five different things to try and to try and build your brand, but you can't necessarily separate out the influence of those different things on building the brand. Hmm. Right. You can't necessarily yeah. tell the difference between like, was the logo redesign a good thing? Was the, you know, sponsoring this, this live event, a good thing? Was the, you know, was the, was the, the, you know, video on our homepage, the thing that, that changed brand perception. Um, but, uh, there, there, you know, there are things that you can do to discover what people are looking for in a brand. Sure. Um, what, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on, on brand development? That's more your area well, than mine. See, I think that actually in this particular instance, brand development comes from the product themselves. You can't, mm -hmm. you know, you, you can take this, you know, the, the juicy couture route and sell relatively cheap stuff that just is, you know, made up to look really fancy when everybody knows that it's not, you know, or you can go and you can, you can, really actually apply lean and iterate on products and build them into something that people want and love. Um, some of the suggestions in the chat here that I'm absolutely in, in love with are the idea that you, you can actually do customer validation for these kinds of products before you make a big mm -hmm. splash. You can take yeah. a product, uh, let's say it's a, I don't know, a, a kind of men's shoes, let's say, nice, nice leather men's shoes, and you can go and try to sell it and you can get customer responses in the store. Set up a little pop-up at some tiny little spot and just see what people like and don't. And you may be that it may be that you're chasing the wrong audience or you're chasing the wrong price point. I mean, there's 50 different things it can be, but you actually can go and try to sell these things and just see what people think. And, and in a way that at least from the get go is at least more of the lean process. It's not necessarily that you want to go and take a pair of shoes with, you know, with you to people who are just out and about and, you know, Hey, you like these shoes? What do you think about these shoes? But, but you can actually, yeah, yeah I mean, you can do a pop-up, you can do, Customer validation through, um, oh, excuse me, I should say, you can do brand development by, by you know, lumping it together with other kinds of brands that you think are good alignment. There's ways of doing those kinds of business-related relationships to try to build on those as well. Um, yeah, I don't think that you can do the sort of traditional iterative, you know, I, I suppose a minimum viable product in the sense of men's shoes is, do you have a pair of men's leather shoes regardless of what they look like? I guess technically that satisfies most people's definition of a minimally viable product. But as Jonas was saying in the chat, it's not a minimally loved product. And I think actually that's probably a better thing to try to hit. What is the thing you're going to build or try to build on and to that people will actually really enjoy? And then you build your brand around that. Yeah. Well, I think we're also, we're sort of, 
we're we're blurring the line between high quality and and luxury, right? And sure. the impression I get from the person asking the question is that um, is that there's a there's a question about the the really high end luxury stuff is is beyond just like high quality things that are priced accordingly. It's things that are priced above what they cost to make because of the perception of them being luxury products because of the the perceived exclusivity right it's it's the it's the yeah. birkin bag right it's the yeah. it's the, the 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 things that are that are priced so much more than what they, than what they actually what the the cost is to make them that the reason you buy them is partly because of the price um and can you you can you do a product like that in Lima? yeah i don't know i don't know that you can start something that you very few people successfully start something that is so luxury priced from the get go that somebody will buy into it. Part of that is a perceived cachet, right? The, the you know the the kind Jimmy choose Jimmy choose shoes uh, for women are are revered in you know in the circles where people revere shoes because they're really well made. They represent a certain lifestyle and a certain brand. But they didn't start that way. Jimmy Choo designed shoes and people bought into it and it it. Elevated. The reason that we like, you know, the reason that we follow uh, the works of, of certain artists is because they're innovative or they're, you know, exemplary of a certain kind of style or the artists themselves were such compelling figures that we are interested in them. But the art by itself as a simple object doesn't necessarily represent the price point of a painting. So sometimes it's the story behind it and that carries it. Lean doesn't necessarily address that. Some of that is very much marketing and you have to really think about it from a brand and a minimum brand perspective, which is a whole other conversation. But yeah. no, I think that in the end you can apply some of the, 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 the processes. I think you just have to think about it in that unique specific instance. I think that yeah. translates to a lot of different kinds of businesses too. You do have to sometimes yeah. make it unique to where you are. So you can, you can also definitely, um, you can you can use the lean approach to figure out what is the particular problem you're solving for somebody that may not be a logistical problem, but it may be a an emotional problem, right? right. What is the what is the 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 thing that they want to associate themselves with in a brand that they're looking for? Do they want to be seen as as youth, youthful? Do they want to be seen as as adventurous? Do they want to be seen as as you know what what is the what is the emotional need that you're trying to trying to fill with this with this luxury brand? Um, but I think also your point about like you 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 build a reputation over time, right? Brands right. don't, you, you can't, you can't invent a brand overnight that is a luxury brand. You have to, you have to grow it like a tree. Um, yeah. And then at some point you actually start to, to be able to reap the rewards of that brand because of the reputation that has gone along with it. But you can't just invent a, a reputation and say like, this is what we're known for. Yeah. You know, people who do sometimes every now and again, somebody is successful in doing that. And it has more to do with a very, short-term splashy kind of effect more than it, it, it seldom ever does actually grow from, from a, you know, sort of a, a big, you know, you, somebody starts big and they just happen to be big and they stay big for a while. It's, it's, um, you know, truthfully, I, I reference him not nearly often enough because I think that he's loud and a pain in the ass. But the truth is that Gary Vaynerchuk in this particular instance is absolutely right that it takes hustle. It takes hard work to build those brands. And lean is the beginning of that. And it's, it's absolutely valuable in this space, but not a, it's, it's certainly not the only tool set. It's a valuable one. It's not the first place I would look if I was building a, a, a luxury brand and specifically yeah. luxury products. But, yeah. Well, and, and in the beginning in particular, yeah. um, and, and Gary Vee personifies this, like people buy from people they like. Yeah. And, and he is one of the most likable people. If you meet him in person, like he, he gives you his full attention. Yep. 
and it's it's kind of amazing because he's he's a big deal like he, he's very well known and he's very busy but like when you are standing in front of him you have his complete undivided attention and it it shows yeah absolutely um yeah we should get him on the show <laughs> that's ever gonna happen maybe maybe, maybe. someday no, I, you know we'll, we'll build our brand first like a I tree. Think, are we not we'll grow, are we not we'll the biggest of brands already uh yeah <laughs> you know we're, we're getting there I just, right? I just, we I just, really just want say, you. We just say it and then it's true, right? Yeah, no, but I really want you to actually believe it because when you're like, uh, yeah, sure, <laughs> it's not encouraging. Sometimes you got to fake it till you make it. It's gonna be like, yeah, we're a mm. great brand. Mm. People love us. Oh god. Anyway. <sighs> <laughs> you know what? Note, you love it. Should we dive into our next question? Oh please, I insist you read it. Okay. Um, so this one is, is, is a little bit broader. Um, the question is, what is the best way to organize a technology startup company in terms of projects? So this is comes from somebody who is growing a startup company with a product that consists of software, hardware, and a service component. What are some good practices in organizing a company project-wise? So um, I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to interpret this as, as, you know, organizational structure, right? How do we, how do we organize the people to do the best work in, in this environment? Yeah. Um, and, and I think that there's, so there's, a, there's a couple of things that are, that are particularly useful here and, and sort of broad, uh, organizational design overview. Um, Lex Sisney writes a lot about this. And, and so he's a good resource for that. But, um, from an organizational design perspective, like first off, like, the fact that, that this person is thinking about, you know, how to structure the 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 organization at all is, is a good thing, right? Rather than just sort of like falling into whatever seems to happen, um, and and reexamining the structure is a is a great um, a great thing to do anytime the strategy changes or anytime you move to a new um, a new life cycle stage, a new um, a new size of the company when you move through sort of like the the various inflection points of the company, you know. You start with a single founder and then you have a small team and then you have, you know, more team than you can feed with a single pizza. And then you have, you know, there, there are various stages and they, and we can go into more detail about that. But from a design perspective, um, you want to make sure that you have, uh, separation of, of certain characteristics. So you don't want to have, um, any function that is, that is tasked with efficiency reporting to a function that is tasked with effectiveness or vice versa, because you'll end up having them, them, them bleed together. And what that means is, Say you've got um, you've got uh, an IT department that is that is tasked with making sure that your computers run, right? It's kind of a binary. Like the computers are either running or they're not. You don't get a whole lot of value out of the computers running, you know, at ninety five percent efficiency versus ninety percent efficiency or ninety nine percent efficiency. It's just they work or they don't. You can do the job or you can't. And so, like the efficiency of how do we make sure they're running with the least number with the least amount of costs um, and the least amount of, of downtime is 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 a very efficiency based approach. Whereas on the software development side, you might be looking at, okay, we're writing algorithms and these algorithms take time to run. And so we need, uh, we need to squeeze every last bit out of, out of running those algorithms. And that's, that's an effectiveness function. So you actually, you want to um, maximize the, the performance that you get out of that with not no regard for cost, but the, but the regard is, is, is not cost first. It's, it's performance first. And if you end up having those, have, having one of those report to the other, um, whichever one is, is at the top of the reporting structure will, will take the cake, right? So if you have software development, you know, reporting into IT, IT will treat it as a, as a cost center and will try to, um, to, to minimize the, 
the costs without recognizing how much that is that is hamstringing the company. Um, the another another area that you want to be careful about is is short versus long term. Um, so you don't want to have uh, short term project focused groups reporting to the same folks as long term sort of strategic initiatives, um, because almost always the long term will end up being in service to the short term, right? So. One example of that is is like brand building, right? Brand building is totally a long-term thing as we were just discussing. Um, but if you end up having brand building reporting into uh, say marketing that is responsible for lead gen, uh, you end up not investing in any of the long-term stuff because everybody starts focusing on how can we get the most leads generated in, in the short term. Um, and, and finally, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a distinction between sort of autonomy and control um, and you, Certain certain groups need to have more autonomy to be able to to um, deliver solutions to the customer, and often the, the autonomy groups are, are things like um, customer service or or customer facing um, uh, product delivery functions um, that need to be able to have the autonomy to solve the customer's problem in the moment. Right, they're closest to the customer, and they need to be able to solve that. At the other end of the spectrum, you have sort of the control functions like um, like uh, legal and HR and and finance, where you um, you want to make sure that those functions are more centralized and don't have autonomy because you, their, their whole goal is to prevent systematic risk to the entire company. So that's sort of the, the broad overview of organizational design. Um, and I'll let Jason talk now because I've just talked for a long time. No, that was, I'm, I'm not even angry. I'm impressed. Uh, you know, <laughs> truthfully, uh, in case you guys haven't noticed, this is kind of where Teague eats lunch. This is very much his, his area of expertise in terms of how companies can you know, build their structure internally to be most effective. Um, the only thing I would add to that, frankly, uh, is is that like anything else, it is actually iterative. I, I know that in mm -hmm. the last couple of years of, you know, building my agency and now in our merged agency, uh, the way that we function, the way in which we, resp we respond and report to one another, the challenges that we face require a constant reevaluation of these processes. Uh, I'll give a great example, proposals. Right. It used to be that I could write a proposal in a Word document. I had a template I built. You know, I'd get it out in about an hour. We're done. We now work with a team where it's it's been clear that part of what people want to see in our proposals are what we look like. And I don't mean our, our headshots. I mean, what does our branding work look like? How do we represent ourselves? What are the, mm -hmm. you know, how do we choose typeface and balance that with uh, visual elements and all that stuff? So we've had to adjust, and I personally have had to adjust my process because part of what I need to do is write a lot of text and then hand that off to somebody who's going to make sure that it looks and presents as well as it should. I'm going to include, you know, text that they've already written up that goes in certain sections. And then that gets handed off to a designer to lay out and put into a, an InDesign file. It's a longer process and it requires many more hands. And so, you know, that'll probably change too. We'll get to a point where I need to be able to turn those out faster and we'll be able to address that accordingly. But in any good growing culture, you're going to hit walls, you're going to hit snags. That's not the problem. It's addressing them and fixing them. And if you don't, then that's the problem. So yeah. I think I think your thoughts on how to structure and the different challenges between short and long term and, you know, resource allocation and all that, I think that's absolutely valuable stuff. I think the one thing to also bear in mind is shit changes, learn to roll with it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you may reach a point where, where the company is so large that you can no longer be personally involved in every proposal that goes out. Right. And so then you need to figure out what the, what the structure looks like then. And, and at what point, you know, what level of, of approval do you have on things going out? And, and at what point do you have to start delegating even the approval of it? So there may be proposals that go out that you never even see. Oh, 
if we are so fortunate to get that big, high quality goodness, problems, right? I, that would be a high quality problem. Um, I just need somebody to give me a couple of million dollars and then we'll have that problem. So if you know anybody, I'm open to ideas. I'll, I'll keep an ear out. I bet you will. Um, anyway, um, so on to our, unless there's something else you wanted to mention on that topic. I, I think I, I think I kind of talked that one to death. Okay. So we'll, we'll probably move on from there. Yeah. So this is actually, this is actually a really good question. Um, as an entrepreneur, how do you know when you have the right team in your corner? Now, to be fair, this could apply to a couple of different teams. This could be the team that you've hired, the team that you're working with internally to build and sell what you're trying to build and sell. It can also be your board of directors or your, your advisory group, right? The team that tells you how to manage all of these different things. And it could be your personal team, your significant other, your family, your friends, your kids. How do you know when everybody's aligned in the right way to help you succeed? Um, I don't know that there's a right answer for this for everybody, but I think that it's sort of, you know, when, you know, I don't know how else to explain it. It's definitely the kind of thing for me, at least where you have to be in it to sort of feel it out. Um, in part, it's understanding where the different pitfalls are from a strategic perspective, as well as an operational one. But it's also, you know, you hire people based on a document that they send to you and a couple of conversations that you have, and you hope, you hope, fingers crossed, that it actually will work out. And a lot of times it does, and a lot of times it doesn't. So I think it's that sense that, I don't know, for me, the answer is, I know I have the right team when I stop worrying about the team and I'm worried a lot more about getting the work in the door. That's a good litmus test. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, that yeah. as a broad sort of solution, right, the right team is one where you stop worrying about if you have the right team and shit just needs to get done. And then you've just got to go do the thing that's your part to get it done. So mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you think? Well, so I have a couple of thoughts on this. Shocking. Um, one, <laughs> shocking indeed. Um, one of the things that, that always sort of jumps to mind is um, is, is Team of Rivals, um, Doris, Doris Kearns Goodwin's book about uh, Lincoln and his cabinet, um, and the the idea of um, having people who actually will, will have that that uh, that vibrant discussion or, or debate or argument at the top level, and then you as the leader of that team make a decision and everybody gets behind it and moves forward. Um, I think you, you, you know, you run into a lot of problems when you have a team where everybody thinks the same thing and you don't have diversity of opinion and, and experience because diversity leads to better decisions. Um, and you want those decisions to surface to the management level, right? You want to make sure that those, that those discussions are happening in a way that you actually get involved in them um, and can see both sides of it. And you, you don't want, you know, the discussion to happen somewhere farther down in the organization and then come up to you and, and somebody just presents it, you know, fait accompli. Um, and you, you don't really know, you don't get to hear the other side of it. Um, the other, so, so I, you know, I, hiring for diversity, I think is a great, is a great thing. Yeah. And, and, uh, and making sure that you have people with strong opinions who will, you know, strong beliefs loosely held yeah. um, is the, is the mantra, yeah. right? You want people who, who have strong opinions and will talk about them and then will let go of them when, when the company decides to move in a different direction um, because you're never going to make everybody happy. And if you're trying to, you know, even a great team will, will end up failing. Oh, um, yeah. the, the other thing that I, that I really, you know, that I think a lot about is, is cultural fit. Um, and I think that, you know, hiring for cultural fit, uh, is both one of the best and worst things for, for a company. And I, I think it depends entirely on how it's done. Um, 
in companies where the cultural fit is, you know, we'll know it when we see it. I think it can be really damaging because people end up hiring people who look like them um, and you lose all of that diversity of, of experience and, and of opinion and, and of, of skills mm -hmm. because you've hired people who are, you know, have the same set of skills, same experiences, look the same, sound the same. Um, and, uh, and, and that's because, you know, culture is a hard thing to, uh, to assess without, you know, some sort of distance from it. Right. So, so when you're, when you don't have a, a codified culture that says like, this is what our culture is, um, people end up just, you know, hiring, hiring homogeneously. Yeah. Um, and so one of the tools that I find really useful for defining a culture is, is a, is a, you know, a, um, a culture inventory where you talk about, um, what the, what the actual modes of getting work done in an, in an organization are and make that very clear and share that with people who you're, who you are, um, you're interviewing with and interview for fit on, on those different pieces. And when, when we talk about culture, you know, we're, we're not talking about, um, uh, free beer and ping pong, right? We're talking about uh, uh, folkways and power distance. The the ideas of of you know can a you know is it appropriate for a junior person in your organization to bring an idea directly to the CEO? In some organizations that works really well, in others it doesn't. And 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 those are two different cultures. Neither one is better or worse. But knowing which one you are, um, and then interviewing people based on that is a great is a great uh, a great way to to determine whether you actually have a good cultural. No, I agree. I think that that. There's also a larger conversation around what is culture that is worth that conversation. Um, boy, that was redundant. In fact, yeah. we may we may we may talk a little bit about that in our next episode. Make sure you oh, yes. subscribe to the email list so you get a notification when it goes out. Boy, talk about the soft sell, Teague. Mm. Anyway, no, I mean I I do think that there's a. I think that there's a question of culture in knowing what the right team is. I mean, I know of a business. And again, I certainly would never say names, but I know of a business where some of the folks who work there are unhappy. And part of the reason that they're unhappy is because they feel you like- You only know of one business like that? I know of one specific in mind that is okay. having a challenge around culture and that several of the people who work there are unhappy and they don't, they know that they're the right people to get the job done. But part of the challenge for them is that they're not being given the culture, the tools by the, the executive team to really succeed in that area. And I think that yeah. oftentimes we talk about how culture is, you know, as oftentimes it's top down, it's in out, it's, you know, everybody, everybody's got their opinion of it, but you are as responsible to your team as they are to you. And you may have the right team in place and not know it because you were so wrapped up in your own crap that you, you missed the signs. Um, yeah. And I think that's a real concern that people should, should bear in mind as well. I think that when you are, a founder of a, of a startup, it is incumbent upon you to, to think about these things in advance and recognize that, yes, the team that needs to be there to build your business should be the right team, but you have a responsibility to be a member of that team and not just to assemble it and then have them do what you want. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of the, um, of the servant leader model mm -hmm. where the leader views their, their, their job as removing obstacles for their team. Um, and providing an environment where they can do great work because, mm -hmm. you know, a, a, a bad organizational structure and a bad culture will kill a great team every time, yeah. right? You can have the most brilliant people in the world and, and they're exactly the right people. But if, if the culture is bad structure, they're just not going to be able to do good work. I agree. Yeah. Um, well, on that note, I, uh, I want to take, since we have a few minutes towards the end of the show, uh, we do have a live question here from uh, our fabulous uh, constant listener, Mr. Wonderful, that uh, 
I do want to get to. And of course, guys, if you have any additional thoughts about any of the questions that we've addressed here today, we'd love to hear from you. So leave us a note, uh, shoot us a tweet, whatever makes you happiest. Um, Mr. Wonderful's question is a very, very simple but direct one. Who is your dream client? And my dream client is anybody who wants to give me a lot of money and give me very little work to do for it. Is that not? You, you can do better than that. I absolutely can do better than that. Um, I, I guess I'll go first then. Um, my first, my dream client. Um, so I have a couple of dream clients. I really love working with clients that are funded startups that have a lot of really smart technology and need help translating that into a broader brand. So dream clients for mm -hmm. me are guys who, um, you know, uh, you know, guys that are fresh out of uh, uh, Y Combinator or 500 startups who've started to, build, you know, they've got a Series A and they're really ready to to, to grow. They're really ready to be sort of the grown-up voice um, in their space. Um, and so I can point to any number of different companies that are in, in that regard. Um, otherwise, in terms of just dream companies that I'd love to work with, God, I'd love to work with, I'd love to work with Nike. I'd love to work for Disney. I'd love to work for, you know, the Fortune 500s that we all know and love. I'd love to do a Coke ad campaign. I'd love to build a website for Amazon. I mean, not just because of their size, or their, 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 you know, the amount of money that they have, but I, I love companies that have really made an impact. And I think that, that in working with them, I, I feel like, not only are we getting value as a business, but we'd learn a lot from from companies like that. Um, as I've mentioned ad nauseum in previous episodes, you know, I worked at Hulu, and one of the great loves of my time at Hulu was I got to see the the inner workings of NBC Universal from the inside, and I, I connected with people who run the organizations at Bravo and Oxygen and NBC.com, and I got to go meet with the producers at Saturday Night Live. And I swear to God, I'm not bragging. I really am talk just talking about experience. And and one of the cool things about that was seeing how these places actually operate. That that my participation in that conversation and in doing something with them brought value to them, and by exchange, brought value to me. So my dream clients are are bigger guys, but it's not because they're just arbitrarily bigger. It's because I think that there's a lot of learning that can go in both directions in those relationships. Anyway. That was really good. Thanks. Yeah. I yeah, mean, that, that, that's a lot better than, than, than your first answer. Yeah, well, I mean, my first answer, we said dream, <laughs> right? Dream, not realistic. I mean, I sure. suppose Nike sure. is a dream too. Could be. Well, Could be realistic. Never yeah. Uh, the challenge, I think, in, in dreaming of clients is there are dream clients that are attainable. It's a matter of deciding what's more important in those client relationships. I can probably go to work for Nike and probably have them as a, you know, listed as a client and probably get paid $500 for it. And in certain instances, that might be okay because the value of the Nike name is going to bring me more business. It's going to make up the difference. Um, but I don't know. I think it's a challenge that, uh, that, that defining what a dream client is, is in part, you know, what are your dreams? What's, What's the level of dream? Some people just dream for enough clients that they can consistently eat. So I guess that's a thing too. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I think, uh, well, I mean, yours are so good. I kind of want to say you just, you do my dream client too. Mm. Right? You can, you can, you can just, you can explain mine. Right? Absolutely. I actually can. I actually Could can. Could you? I'm, let's, let's, let's try this as an experiment. Sure. See, see, see whether, if, if you cannot, it will not be because, because of your failure, because it will be because I have failed to adequately explain to sure. you in a way that you can explain to others. Okay. I believe that your dream client is somebody who is uh, building a company who has traction, who has a specific vision and needs uh, somebody to uh, organize is the wrong word, but somebody to keep 
things moving while he pushes things forward. That's a He's the one cutting down the path. You're the guy making sure that everybody behind is caught up, is organized, and is ready for anything that comes, you know, comes at them. You're the kind of person who wants to help make sure that the organization itself is, is uh, executed well, that it's, it's well managed, that people are being listened to, that the culture is such that it's being representative of everybody's interests without being overwhelmed by the multiple voices of a democracy, that the person that you're working for has a clear sense of these are the things I need to worry about and IT, I'm going to take care of everything else and we're going to make sure that we're coordinated on that attack and that you, you look for somebody where it's not that just that you can bring value because I think everybody wants to bring value, but that you can make a material impact on the company's culture and organization in such a way that when you leave, they are markedly better for your having been there. How did I do? That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. I was, I was going to go with the, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's growing startups where the, the founder is looking for a right-hand man. Um, cue Hamilton music. Oh God. Right? <clears throat> now it's going to be stuck in your head all day. No, right? but we have to get Lauren Worley back here in part because she's no longer at NASA and she's working for the one foundation. And I want to hear more about that, but also because mm, yeah. she'd never heard of the Hamilton musical. And if you haven't heard of it, I suggest looking it up, but just the idea of a musical about Alexander Hamilton was such a funny concept to her that she didn't care that it's one of the hottest musicals in the last 10 years of Broadway. She just started making up ridiculous songs about Alexander Hamilton. And just how that's it, fantastic. Yeah, it was it was pretty great. Anyway, um, worth having her back at some point, nonetheless. Um, no, look, I, I think that for each of us, and I think actually this is a larger question about what an ideal client really means to people or an ideal customer in that regard. I think your answer is a perfectly valid one. I want to be the right hand man to somebody who is, you know, building a company that has, you know, that has value and, and has some money to throw around. Um, but well, your I, answer is totally better. Mine's just shorter. No, 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 no. I, my point is that my actual mine isn't better. Mine is more emotional. Yours is direct is more direct. Mm. I mean, my mm. answer that I gave could just as easily be: I want to work with Fortune 500 companies that have you know a million dollars or more to spend on marketing. It's a perfectly valuable mm. answer and perfectly viable mm. one. It also is totally devoid of emotion. So everybody's answer is right. The the question is: Does that answer really represent everything you're looking for? Mine may be too maybe too verbose for some people. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and, and I think, you know, on some level, the, level the, the answer may be more resonant. It also takes more time to deliver. And so that's why we kind of need both. If I were to go into the emotional side of things, I'd probably talk about like, yeah, I want to work with leaders who are who are conscious in their capitalism, people who are interested in both doing good and doing well, and who want to make sure that they're, they're delivering real value to their customers. They are, they're, you know, making enough of a return that, that people can not have to worry about the money and that they are creating an environment where they want to create an environment where all of their employees actually love to come to work every day. Mm -hmm. So, well, I think that it's a, it's a valid question. Uh, you know, I, I think it's a valid question in terms of what we do as our business. I think that one of the other things that is also important to ask is, you know, who would you work with if money wasn't a factor, right? Mm. Because mm -hmm. I, I would love, totally. if we had all the money in the world, I would love to spend my days helping startups that have no money and have no, you know, no ability. My, one of the first things you and I've talked about this offline a bunch, I would love to find a way to bring value to startups that have no money because they need it. They need it more than anybody else. I mean, how do you take a concept that sure. is stuck in somebody's brain and actually communicate it to a larger audience? I tried very hard to find a solution that was low cost, low impact, or excuse me, low cost, low impact to me and high value to the entrepreneur. And 
it's really hard. And I'm not at a place where I can deliver that yet. I may not be able to, I don't know. Yeah. That's I do I do office hours on on Skype and and Google Hangouts um, with entrepreneurs on occasion um, because I find that that's one way to to provide some of that value and and you know most of that is is with early stage startups and as we both know early stage startups a lot of them don't turn into funded startups or, or or profitable startups and so most of those are not actually you know most of that's not actually lead gen most of that is just community development yeah right and we've both been involved with the DC lean startup community um, DC lean startup circle. Um, and a lot of that is also, you know, it's community development. It's we're, we're, we're supporting the entrepreneurial scene where we're probably not going to make a whole lot of money off of that ever. Nope. Right. Nope. But, uh, and, and but it's, that's, it's probably better that way, to be honest. I think it also mm -hmm. takes some of the value that you're trying to bring to the table out of it when you're also trying to charge them 500 bucks a month or something like that. So, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Anyway, I think that's enough humble bragging for me and you. Um, as, as we've come to the end of the show, uh, a couple of things before we do our sign off. Um, again, just want to remind everybody, uh, we'd love to have you guys, you know, subscribe to the mailing list and keep track of things because we are, you know, we're doing things on the podcast side that we're not doing here on Blab. We'd love for you guys to check those out and give us your feedback as well. Um, and you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I think we should try and get Gary Vaynerchuk on the show. So for those of you here in the chat, as well as uh, listening via podcast, uh, I've listed uh, a linked, uh, an address that you can link to, to uh, fill out a form and tell Gary that you want him to come on the show. Because why the heck not? And if we get everybody to write in, I'm sure somebody might actually notice. So there you go. <laughs> Excellent. Indeed. Um, Good deal. Yes. Teague, my friend, uh, where can people reach out to you online if they want to follow up or ask questions? You know, I keep I keep saying uh, it's it's teaguehopkins.com, and then it occurs to me that people who are listening probably have no idea how to spell Teague. So Teague is T-E-A-G-U-E, -E, like league, but with a T, and Hopkins is, you know, spelled like the college or like the university, um, .com, and that's where you can find me. And it's the same on Twitter, at Teague Hopkins. Indeed. And you can find me at Jason Nellis, and that's J-A-S-O-N-N-E-L-L-I-S. Uh, or you can email me at jason at brilliant.co, and that's B-R-L-L-N-T dot co. Um, as always, we'll be here each and every week uh, with lots of news and tidbits and thoughts and discussion. Um, uh, we appreciate your time, and we hope that you have a great week. And for those of you that experienced the snow that we did, we hope that you are dug out by now. Uh, if you live in D.C., that still might be a question, to be honest. It's true. Indeed. All right. And with that, thanks again, and have a great week. Oh, 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 oh,